There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome to the Beast Tactical Podcast, where we try to get under the bonnet of all things tactical and statistical at Brentford. I'm David Anderson, your host for today, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by my good friend, Brentford historian, Bees fan, and author of multiple books, but most recently, and why we're here today, just a bus stop in Hounslow. He's also one of the shrewdest, nice guys I've ever met, um, Greville Waterman. Greville, how are you doing? And thanks for joining us. Well, I don't know how I can follow that, David, um, but I'm Honoured, pleased and delighted to be on your show and I hope I can do it justice. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure you will do. I'm sure you will do. But yeah, thank you so much to join uh, for joining us and talking about your new book. Um, I think a good place to start is tell us a bit about your masterpiece. What do we have here, Gravel? What is it? Well, it's a record um, and hopefully a bit of um, a review and analysis of just an incredible year in the life of Brentford Football Club. Um when the club was promoted, and like most Brentford supporters, I'm sure not many of us ever thought this day would ever happen. I thought that this was just an incredible time for us and we needed to rejoice in it and make the most of it. At worst, the um, negative part of me thought this could be the only year in my lifetime, the only season in my lifetime when we played in the Premier League. At best, this was the start of another wonderful new episode in the club's history. So I thought we needed to have a a record of it that we could read and look back on and, and smile at in years to come. So that's what I did. So I thought someone better do it, so I'll do it. And who better? <laughs> yeah, so we're not really talking about a book specifically aimed at like Brentford FC Anoraks. It's so much more than that, isn't it? Well, hopefully there's a bit of something for everyone. Um, you know, um, famous philosopher uh, once said, to know your future, you must know your past. So what I tried to do was to put last season into context. I made a few comparisons to uh, episodes in the club's history. Look back a bit at 1935, which was the last time Brentford got promoted to the Premier League. I looked a bit at the, forgive me for using the figure, 31,449 days since the club last won promotion to the first uh, to the top top tier, 
So I wanted non-Brentford fans to understand a little bit about the club because the club is different and prides itself on being different. I wanted to explain to a degree the innermost workings of the club and how it functions. And at the same time, I wanted to describe what happened on and off the pitch during what was a quite amazing season. So hopefully there's something in it for non-Brentford fans, football fans, as well as Brentford fans, and hopefully Christian Eriksen fans as well. <laughs> All sorts of fans, yeah. I've got a copy in front of me. I've nearly finished. Um, it's a beautiful book. Um, the front cover is incredible. It's so simple yet effective with one of those uh, clear channel JC Deco bus stops and um, just just a bus stop in Hounslow painted over the advertising boarding. Um, did you come up with that design? Uh, not the design. I came up with the title. Luckily, my publisher has a very good designer and he came up with it very quickly. Um, to be honest, I had the title of the book pretty much before the book was even started. It was just such an obvious title. And Thomas Frank, thanks to Thomas Frank, he was so on message all season in his public and, and private utterings. Um, and he kept using the self-deprecatory um, title of just the bus stop in Hounslow to help explain and help uh, put Brentford into context. So as soon as he started using it, I knew I had to use it. Yeah, you're on to a winner. Um, <clears throat> on the back of the book is this quote, uh, just after the um, the number of days uh, since the top flight football as well. Um, could a team that begun a season without a single player who had started a Premier League match compete on a level playing field? Um, you also in the book as well talk about Nate Silver's um, 538 analytical website. And there's a bit where you say... Um, he has us just squeaking clear of relegation, finishing 17th ahead of Crystal Palace, Norwich and Watford with about a 36% chance of being relegated, which is quite, it's quite big odds there. Um, by the same way, uh, the same pundit has ranked us as the 81st best football club in the world, ahead of the likes of Feyenoord, FC Köln, and Fulham, and eight places ahead of Mittyland, Brentford's sister club. Um, it's pretty hard for me to get my head around all this data and take it seriously when Brentford were probably the 81st best team in England. <laughs> Talk to us about your hopes and fears going into the season, um, like the fear of relegation. And how did you really think this team would take to like a step up in quality? Well, it's a question of how objective you can be. I mean, uh, there's a there's a sort of a, a stripe of pessimism that goes through most Brentford fans. You know, it's Brentford in it. Uh, we managed to screw up nine playoffs before we finally did it. So you have to get through that and look objectively at things. So part of me thought... We'll find a way of screwing it up. Uh, but then I thought about it more carefully and thought this club and this team is pretty much premiership ready. Now, the fact that there was not one player that had ever started a premiership game before last season and only Ivan Tony and Sergi Canos had made the odd substitute appearance before, I actually looked upon as an advantage because in the past, clubs promoted to the Premier League would go and look at and sign the Neil Redferns of this world, the players that had played for yo-yo clubs and were uh, too good for the championship and not quite good enough for the Premier League. And Brentford didn't do that. They were signing players for the Premier League um, for the last two or three seasons. So ever since we started signing slightly more experienced players, the Ethan Pinnocks, the Pontus Janssens, the Christian Norgards, and go against the traditional Brentford recruitment model, I knew that they thought they were very, very close to the Premier League. 
And given how well Brentford planned things, I also knew that Brentford would not throw away this God-given opportunity and would do everything within their power to stick in the league. So um, I actually spoke to a lot of people within the club and obviously they have this wonderful modelling system, which you would know just as much, if not more so than I would. And I managed to persuade someone to tell me what the model said about us before the start of the season. And the model predicted that Brentford would finish 14th with 45 points. So that sustained me. Similarly, you look at the net net silvers and the other eminent um, and uh, analytic uh, websites and podcasts. Most of them, the serious people, gave us a good shot at staying up. Um, Most of the broadcast and the uh, print journalists thought we were going to go down in flames. But I thought that they probably weren't as prepared or as knowledgeable as some of the analysts. And I put you in that category too. And I remember listening, because I was able to listen on Zoom to all the pre-match press conferences, which were fascinating because you had the ringmaster Chris Wickham doing a fantastic job of controlling everything and then you had all these journalists uh, including particularly for the Arsenal game all the big boys all the national big boys who had not done their homework didn't really understand Brentford a tiny bit patronizing and all asking the same questions Thomas Frank probably the brightest man in the room desperately trying to stay awake at times when he was asked the same question 15 times. But most of the print journalists didn't really have a clue as to what Brentford was all about and thought that we would be little plucky old Brentford who would treat everyone with respect and do a Norwich and go down with all guns blazing. They were wrong. So in my, in my head, I thought we would actually survive. Would we do as well as we did? I wasn't sure about that. And obviously there were times in January and February when even I was beginning to doubt. Something I'm picking up from what you just said there, the the not rating X Premier League experience comes through a little bit. And it's mentioned a few times throughout the book. Um, and also being underestimated by the rest of the league. I found that quite interesting as well. Um, but I want to move nicely on to what you were saying about being comfortable and people saying we finished 14th in the league because it's quite an accurate assessment. <laughs> the model has proved to be pretty right. Um it's this Justice League the guys talk about a lot as well. We, we're all well aware of it. It's just looking at an underlying metric table instead of just points. It's, you're trying to glean performance levels and build a ranking system without just using the three points for a win and one point for a draw. Um, the blur between those second... The top eight is obviously an anomaly in itself of really good teams. The bottom 12 of the Premier League is not quite as good. And there's a bit of a blur between that set of teams and the top six in the championship. And not all of these 25, 26 teams can be in the Premier League at the same time. You've mentioned it already. They're these yo-yos. Um, a couple of people in the book say we aim to be a bit more than a yo-yo and we want to be an average Premier League team. How, After this first season, how close do you think we are to that already? Well, an average Premier League team, according to Phil Giles, means anywhere near to the... 8th, ninth, 10th position, uh, because obviously you've got six or seven clubs that are vying for uh, European honours and the Champions, Champions League qualification, and then you've got about a gaggle of about a dozen clubs just desperate to cling on and stay up in the Premier League. Um, he sees us 
very much um, as a Premier League survivor and a team that will flourish. Look at Brighton. I think Brighton are a very good comparison for, for, for that. So hopefully we can grow and sustain each year by improving steadily. And I thought towards the end of last season, we were very close to that. And the, the game that totally personified that, I thought, was the West Ham home match, where it was a very clear and comfortable 2-0 win against a very good team, albeit one that was uh, coming up to a very big European game. So maybe they didn't quite uh, put everything into the game. But we controlled that game from start to finish. And we were comfortable in our own skin. We were comfortable on the ball. We played with confidence, precision, class. Um, and I looked at that game and I thought, you know what? We look a Premier League team. If we can play anything like this, we will be a credit. And as Thomas Frank would say all the way through the season, he wanted us to be an asset to the Premier League and to be humble but brave. And we certainly were that day on many other days too. So I would hope and expect that whilst teams won't be taken by surprise by us, we will be continue to be an asset to the Premier League next season. Greville, if I was to ask you which defender you mentioned the most in the book, where would your money go? Which defender? Hmm. Uh, which def- well, I mean, David Rea, but he's a goalkeeper rather than a defender. In fact, to be honest, he's more of an attacker. Which defender? That's, that's, that's a very good question. Um, Probably Ethan Pinnock, I'm guessing. Okay, close, close. It's actually Christopher Ayer. You mentioned, oh. him, 80, you mentioned him 81 times. Oh. And, uh, how many think... of those are his hamstrings? <laughs> yeah, how, how often is Christopher Ayer followed by pulled hamstring in the book? Um, not quite 81 times, but I think um, the reason I've picked up on that is because I, I think he's um, symptomatic of of us just going into the Premier League and there's a lot of talk about forgetting players with Premier League experience and just young, hungry players who can improve with the team, um, confident on the ball, can play multiple positions. And I just personified that. But he also personifies um, the scouting system of Brentford, like the qualities. And and it's referenced in the book. Um, I was watched 127 times across like live and video scouting capacity. Um, is that the kind of detail and speed of working and how we can work that just takes us that step further in the transfer arms race? Well, I would hope so, because, you know, you watch someone 127 times. Now, obviously, that's a combination of video scouting and also physical scouting. It'd be interesting if that could have been broken down. I'd like to know how many times they actually physically watched him in the, in the flesh, as opposed to how many times they just watched his watched film of him, um, a video of him. But you could see that they were painstaking in their in their preparation and their analysis of him to make sure that he was the best option for them. And then when they managed to get him in the room, he was completely gobsmacked by the by how much they knew about him. So it, the, when they talked, of course they wanted they, they need to talk about money and all the, these things, but it was about the opportunity. So he realised that he was coming to a club that would develop him, that had a personal growth plan for him and would use him to his strengths and would make him an even better player. So it was almost a no-brainer for him and he had the opportunity to go to clubs far higher up in the, in the, in the food chain. 
Now, he, to me, totally personifies what, what New Brentford is all about, because hopefully now we identify these players, and unfortunately now it's going to be hard for us to come up with players of the requisite uh, potential and quality that no one else has, has ever come across. I mean, who, who knew about Ben Rama and Mopay before we did? Not a lot, I have to say. So we've got to persuade, we've got to have something different on the table. Now, we can't match clubs for money. We can match them for London, which is a good point. We can match them for the quality of football we can play. We can surpass them for the quality of coaching they will get and the fact that they will be put in a shop window. But now we're buying these players to keep rather than to sell them on. So it's interesting how many players now have been with us for three seasons or more. So David Reyes coming into his fourth season, Pinnock and Norgard, I think the same. Um, and at this stage, these players would inevitably have been sold on, particularly if we were in the championship. If we were in the championship, they'd all have gone by now. But now we're buying these players to keep. And that, to me, is the fundamental change in how Brentford's transfer business has developed over the seasons. I think we can also um, surpass a lot of these teams in culture and environment too, can't we? Um, there was a time not too long ago that uh, Brentford would laugh. Like, they basically laughed at in the press as... Um, as loons and doing all these quirky things, um, having two directors of football and Martin Samuel tirades and the scrapping of the academy. But what they were subtly doing was building this perfect environment um, in terms of culture and and a place to foster development. Um, something I want to pick up on as well, which stood out to me in the book, was uh, is the Michael Caulfield quote, actually. Um, I think he was talking about success and culture, and he was saying it starts at the top. If you get that right, you stand a chance. Um, everything at Brentford stems from the leaders we have and have had now. Their integrity runs through the club. It's not luck. These people have been recruited specifically. Um, when asked what the recipe for success is, Colford replied, it's the ability to get a group of people from many diverse and different backgrounds towards a common purpose, while ensuring everyone is having the time of their lives. <laughs> it's an alignment towards a goal and a complete commitment towards it. That symbolises what Brentford is all about. Yeah, talk to me about what Brentford stood for or identified as, as maybe like 20 or 30 years ago and what it stands for now, like diversity, cutting-edge recruitment, business strategy, shiny new stadium. Well, what Brentford stood for in the past was just about survival. Um, we would sign um, has-beens and never was. We would sign other people's cast-offs and rejects. We would try and cobble together a squad. Um, and it's not until really um, Martin Allen came and revitalised players through his own energy and commitment. But it's not really until the Matthew Benham era that we have really been scientific in really in restructuring the club. And what the club stands for now is all about unity, togetherness, innovation um, and trying and engagement and and actually liberating people and giving them the freedom to develop. And I think one of the interesting things is I said to Thomas Frank, it's incredible, you know, all the players call you Thomas. Now, that doesn't happen in football. And he laughed and said, well, that's my name. He said, well, Ivan Tony is a bit more old school. He calls me Gaffer. But he says, you know, I'm happy for the players to call me my name because that's my name. I'm happy to engage with them all. And very often the good ideas might come from the likes of Pontus or Christian Norgard, but it doesn't mean they respect me any less. In fact, they, prob they, they probably respect me more because the club is all about empowerment 
And as Michael Caulfield said, it's about hiring people who are better than you and letting them get on with their job. Yes, you have to set the overall strategy, and that's done at the top level by Matthew Benham and, and the Phil Giles of this world. And then you let the good people get on with their job, and that's on the pitch and that's off the pitch. And you'll find pretty much in all every department of the club, both the playing side and the marketing and communication side now, you've got top-class people doing a top-class job. I sound like Thomas Frank, don't I? Top, top people. Um, and I think that's what's so important. And I think the players relish the fact that they can play with some freedom and that they're treated like grown-ups. So we've got the much-vaunted no-dickheads policy. And... I also said to Thomas, tell me about Scandinavians. And he said, well, they're incredible people. And I spoke to a few Scandinavian journalists. And what they said to me was the Scandinavians are very much into um, the benefit of teams rather than individuals. They will sublimate their own egos for the, for the common good. And, but they want to be heard. They want to be listened to but not in an anarchic way, like, you know, without stereotyping, people say that a lot of the Dutch footballers just want to dominate and tell people what to do. The Danes and the Scandinavians and the Norwegians want to, give, want to be heard. They want to be able to provide their input and for it to be discussed. And then they will go with what the, the manager or the head coach decides. And that's how Thomas Frank um, runs, his, runs his club. And the other thing, of course, is that, again, the Danes and the Norwegians and all Scandinavians that we have are highly intelligent uh, men. They speak better English than you and I do. And they're a perfect blend. I, I think that this is, again, one of the reasons why Christian Eriksen came to us, because he felt at home. And I think that's the other thing in that we have the uh, probably the smallest uh, squad, the least experienced squad, the squad that costs the least money, the lowest budget, and the lowest average attendance in the Premier League. Now, that's a perfect storm. But actually, what we've done is turn all these perceived negatives into positives. So it's us against the world. So a lot of clubs have done that, you know, that we're the underdogs. But we've done it in a very organised and committed manner. And certainly also the uh, unity and the link and the association between the fans and the club and the playing staff is also important. And moving on to say that had we been promoted in 2020, now Cliff Crown said to me, there are a hundred million reasons why I wish we'd gone up that season. And I absolutely take his point. Similarly, the fact that perhaps, uh, Ben Rama and Watkins, or at least one of them, would have stayed at the club had we gone up a year earlier. But the key point is that the, the squad had another year of development and we did not have to play our Premier League games in a new but empty stadium. I suspect that if we had played um, in an empty Brentford community stadium, uh, we'd have got relegated because... You listen back. I've been watching back some of the matches from last season and the crowd noise and involvement is unbelievable. Now, a lot of players would say how much they hated playing at Griffin Park because it was a dump. It was our dump, but it was, it was a squalid dump. So the away dressing room was a tip. 
apparently there was no lock on the on the toilet so there was no privacy if you wanted to go to the toilet i'm also told uh, perhaps apocryphally but who knows that the powerpoint didn't work so the clubs couldn't play their own music which of course clubs do to wind, you know get themselves wound up before a game so the pitch was small the crowd were breathing down your neck and were raucous and loud and involved so many clubs jacked it in before they even went on the pitch. Uh, Jed Wallace, really good Millwall player now at West Brom, said, we were a goal down before we even went on the pitch. So there was a massive home advantage. Now, the Brentford Community Stadium is gorgeous and glorious. I love it. Um, the fans are as close as possible to the pitch. but And the atmosphere generated, again, is wonderful. And I think that the team fed off the fans, the fans fed off the players. Had we not had that, I don't think we would still be a Premier League team. We can't uh, we can't not talk about uh, Mr. Matthew Benham. Um, <laughs> whenever answering questions, he he kind of often he often downplays his role, doesn't he? He downplays his intelligence and what he does and doesn't know. I mean such a relatively short space of time when compared to I don't want to age you, Greville, but your time in supporting and following bees, like how steep has this rise been? I mean <laughs> it's pretty incredible. It's just beyond comprehension. Um, you know, I started going to the club when I was a very, very small boy in the mid-late 60s. And I'm used to these battles in the mud like Passchendaele and Flanders against Workington and Scunthorpe and Barrow uh, with just the odd derby against QPR and Millwall to look forward to. And it was all about brawn rather than brain. Um, so the odd good player stood out. Um, amazingly so you know I enjoyed it it was great Uh, there was a good atmosphere there but we were we were small fry so we went up in 92 and then we ruined it and we threw away that promotion by completely mishandling everything about the 92-93 season I won't go into that now it's too long ago but we threw that away and of course we just went into a steep decline Um, so when finally the Benham era took, uh, began and you could see that good, solid, sensible decisions were being made, the club was being put on a, a reasonable financial uh, foothold and we got promoted in 2014 to the championship, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I never thought that would happen again and I would have settled for that. I would have taken that all day long. So, you know, to be where we are now is just... I, I can't even use a word to describe it apart from incredible. I get the sense from <clears throat> in the book that you enjoyed talking the most uh, to Thomas Frank, <laughs> maybe follow uh, follow closely by chatting to Phil Giles. Um, Thomas first, he's, he's currently the 10th longest serving head coach or manager in English football. I, I think if you polled Denmark as a country and asked whether he would go on to be this successful in England, I doubt any of them would have foreseen this. Um, yeah, maybe give us a sense of why the turnaround for him after what was a pretty disappointing time in Denmark and Bromby, and um, he he was quite ridiculed at times. Um, to yeah, to to becoming one of the best coaches in England. Um, give us your assessment on him as a person, coach, and then some of his influences as well. I think you have to you 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 have to um, give Brentford an awful lot of credit because they stuck by him. Uh, because what was his record? He lost eight of his first ten games. Uh, Marinus Dijkhausen lasted uh, one less. I think he lasted nine games, if, I, if I'm correct. But the difference is 
at Brentford, they look beyond the results, they look at performances. Now, he had had two years or so to audition for the role as one of um, Dean Smith's uh, assistants alongside Richard O'Kelly. So they knew that he knew the game. Um, I remember meeting him um, at Sheffield United after the first game of, I think, the 17-18 season, because I was up there with Bob Booker. I'd just written the biography of Bob Booker, who was a former Brentford stalwart, uh, who is a living legend in Sheffield. And we went up to the game, um, and after because he and after the game, we we're in the manager's office uh, because he was very friendly with Chris Wilder, who he played with at Sheffield United. And Dean and uh, Thomas Frank walked in, and I was introduced to them, and they were both charming, charming, intelligent people. I didn't know who I was from Adam, but we had a chat for about fifteen minutes about nothing, and I was just enormously impressed with both of them. So when he was when he was brought in as manager. I knew that he would have the communication and man management skills. It's the question of whether he had the coaching ability. Now, he quickly proved that he, he, he did have that because he arrested the slump in, was, it was 2018-19, wasn't it, when he, he switched to, um, to three at the back, didn't he? Do you remember against Bolton? He, he switched everything around and he rescued a season that was going down the pad. And he took us reasonably close towards the upper echelons of the table in the second half of that season. So it was obvious that he knew what he was doing and he developed since then and everything has been wonderful since then. Um, when you meet him, um, he, is a, he makes you feel very, very special. Uh, you are the most important person in the room. So unlike other people... He's not looking over your shoulder for someone else. He's not looking at his phone. He's not looking at his watch. He listens to you and he thinks about it. And then he responds accordingly. So I had a couple of very good conversations with him. And we talked about all sorts of things. And he's just, I think the best way to describe him, he's interested and interesting. Um, I'm not trying to gush about him, but he's a very special person. And you can understand why the players respond to him. But he's tough. You can see there's a very, very tough streak in him. And I wouldn't want to cross him. And I suspect that he loses his temper very, very rarely. But when he does, I'm sure that people listen. Um, I Last time I saw him was the day or two, uh, two days after the Leeds defeat. And he was furious with Sergi Canos. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, his lack of professionalism and his stupidity um, in getting that first yellow card against Leeds for taking his shirt off. And he, he says to me that as soon as he did it, he turned around to Brian Reamer and said, he'll be sent off in a minute because he knew he was up against Rafinha. And Rafinha is a tricky character. And he tempted him into a very stupid and rash tackle within 90 seconds. And there you go. A game that we had played very poorly in, uh, but dragged ourselves back with 10 men and the, the, the power was with us when we equalised. I think that Leeds were ready to, um, to to falter. And I think we could have beaten them with 10 men. But Serge's lack of professionalism cost him and us very dear. And I'm led to believe that nobody in the dressing room was very pleased with it. No, it was um, it was a crazy few minutes, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, one best forgotten. Because uh, the other side was Leeds could have been relegated and that would have been a, a shiny badge to wear. Um, a number of clubs have these huge, multi-powerful stakeholders and decision-making is influenced by those with <laughs> selfish interests. And we're lucky that Thomas Frank, um, he's obviously a decision-maker and he's um, not self, um, not selfish in any way. Um, but yeah, sometimes these clubs have people who are just not qualified to input or make these key decisions. But what's coming across here from Brentford and you speaking to people in depth is that there's this this one unified goal or message that, that was transmitted from the top and and everyone worked towards it. But um, but who surprised you most when talking to people about the book, Gravel? Who surprised me? Well, actually, none of them did. I, I actually thought that they would all be very open, very intelligent people. And they all were. They were, you know, I've spoken to most people before. I actually didn't speak to many players. I, I did have um, a very pleasant uh, and illuminating hour or so with Sergi Canos, uh, who was as friendly and, you know, we've just slagged him off, but he's a lovely, lovely young man. And Brentford is etched deep in his soul. You know, he knows Brentford. And, and one of the things that Thomas Frank really values Sergi for, because let's be nice about Sergi now, is that he understands Brentford. And he is a bit like Peter Gillam in that he can explain what Brentford stands for to all the new signings. So nobody really surprised me. They were all as I expected. Um, and they all answered my questions very, very openly. No one hid anything. The only thing I was slightly disappointed with is that um, in order to get input and from the club and to be allowed 
to have a peek inside and to talk to everyone, they insisted on um, having copy approval, which is something that no writer wants to grant. And I had to think long and hard about that. But in the end, I said, okay, because Phil Giles said to me, we're not going to be stupid about this. Um, we know what, you know what you're trying to do and we will try and help you. So I trusted Phil and he read everything and he was very quick and professional and consistent about doing it. And he changed little bits where he felt that perhaps I got something wrong or perhaps, perhaps I got a bit too close to something or something else. But he really changed very little. And I said to him um, not long ago, I said, you know, Phil, I'm really disappointed you haven't changed much. He said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, obviously what I've written is far too bland and I haven't really uncovered anything. <laughs> um, but really, there isn't any dirt to uncover. Um, and whilst um, I, I think the book is very, very optimistic and very praise, it praises the club to the, to the skies and is, is full of good things, it, it hopefully is objective too. And it's not a hagiography, but it's really hard to find much to criticise about. The club is really, really well run by very bright people who make clear, consistent, objective decisions. And most importantly, they stick to them. They don't change their, their, their tune in midfield. They don't change horses. Uh, they don't make knee-jerk reactions. They stick to what they know is right. If something is proved to be wrong, they change it. So Thomas Frank changed the formation um, two-thirds of the way through the season, and there were good reasons why he did it. Um, obviously, it had 11 minutes to gel against Newcastle before the Josh De Silva sending off changed everything. But no, the, the club is in, impeccably run by good people, and the dressing room is packed full of good, solid, honest professionals who, of course, they want to progress themselves. They have a career. They, they want to maximise their own potential. But they know they're at a club that is pretty special and unique in the game. And I think most of them feel very privileged to be there. Yeah, and, and the fans are um, definitely privileged to support such a, such a well-run club at this time. Um, you've mentioned him a little bit there. It's, it's time to talk about Phil Giles, who is really effectively the CEO of the club he's in charge um everything goes through him um he's the he's the buffer between the club and Matthew Benham and he's the realist and and he's also now uh, a sole director of football where he was um a team with Rasmus Ankerson who left uh, midway through last season Phil yeah he, I mean he's the calm genius who is yeah I guess very rarely not the smartest person in the room um how much of a blow do you think losing Rasmus Ankerson is and do you think it will have any effect at all well, we, we, we have to wait and see. And I asked Phil, I asked Phil directly about that question. And his view is, is that he really has good people at all levels. And obviously, um, he and uh, Rasmus sort of split things between them. But at the same time, Phil, I think, really had his fingers on the pulse of everything uh, that goes on. Um, and obviously all the planning for the next, I think they planned probably 18 months in advance. So all the planning um, had already been done. Obviously, he has lost that. He has lost that sounding board. But at the same time, um, I think it's also provided opportunities forever and for other people. And Phil has already done a restructure of the department, uh, which has resulted in Lee Dykes moving up. 
Um, you know, as he said to me, whenever someone leaves, there's always the opportunity to review the overall structure, give other people the chance to step up and take responsibility. We already have a Scandinavian culture and connection. So I think the view is that um, they'd rather not have lost Rasmus, uh, but at the same time, they can make do without him. Will he, you know, obviously, Raz is aware of what Brentford were up to and whether that will cause us problems in terms of what Southampton do. But I don't believe he's very much hands-on at Southampton. I think he's got far bigger fresh fish to fry than having an operational role at a club that he and his uh, partners own. Listening to you talk about Phil and um, his his editing and reading of your, your book and not having too much to change disappointed you. I, I think just reading it, I think it's because it shows Brentford in a great light. Um, where previously... Brentford may have wanted to talk down their abilities um, and not let on how good they are. I think if, if you think about how the PR has changed with the club now, we need to attract better players and we're going to be going up against better clubs. It's actually not too bad an idea to have the message of how good Brentford are get spread far and wide. So I think that might be why your brilliant book didn't get quite the editing it may have done in the past. But listening to Phil in the book in his interview, it's, it's really good. Um, you definitely... Um, Make sure you read this and it is a must read. But he, he talks about what he found most interesting and what impressed him the most. And it was it was actually like, he could easily talk about some of the bigger players, but he, he talks about Mads Roslev and Mazbek Sorensen, who he says combined cost us about £200,000. Um, just how easily they stepped into the team. And then he also talks about Saman Godos, someone who not many people would think about if you think about how good our Premier League season has been. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the right characters. Um What's interesting from a recruitment and tactical and, I guess, football strategy perspective is their approach to versatility. I think we hear a lot about good characters and hungry players, but there's a few references to versatility in your chat. And and then there's a conscious move not to recruit players who are just specialists. I think if you think of the spine of the team, Raya, Pinnock, Janssen and Tony, that's the spine. They're the specialists. But every single other player can play multiple positions. You can play players on left or right. They can play fullback wide forward, central, and then one of these most versatile players is Brian Mbemo. He, I mean, think about how many players' positions he's played for us. Left back, forward, left wing, right wing, centre forward, just off the striker. If he could if he could finish, we're talking about a 45 million player here, aren't we? And um, I think Phil Giles is adamant that he will revert to a to a great goal-scoring player eventually. What's your what's your take on Brian Mbemo? What do you think? Uh, Phil Giles... He and I dance around each other because we, we, we generally meet a couple of times a year and he's very canny and I'm, of course, pumping him for information and he tells me nothing. Um, but he tells me nothing by telling me lots of things that aren't quite what I want to know, but I still learn, I still learn snippets. But he, he says he will never tell me about a, a forthcoming transfer. Well, he has once, but generally he won't because he says things change. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, he, the way he's very happy to talk about current players, and he's particularly proud of the two Mads. Um, and in fact, something that got edited out of my book by my editor was the fact that um, I was disappointed. It I just noticed it wasn't there. Is he said that pound for pound, Mads Roslev is the biggest bargain in Brentford's history? You know, because I think he cost about five thousand pounds or something. 20,000 pounds, something absolutely tiny. And for that, we've got a player who might not be ready to be a starter, 
but is a very good Premier League squad player who can fill in and, you know, fill in seamlessly. So you're absolutely right about um, the question of players who are versatile. And Salmon Godos was a great example. And I think you look back at the Spurs game. Do you remember the Spurs game um, late in the season where suddenly we lost Norgard? We lost Christopher Ayer the day before the game with concussion. And they were scrabbling around and they had to move Roslev to right-sided centre-half and they didn't have a right-back. So what could they do? They had, they had a couple of options. Um, I think Sergi was already injured at that stage, so he couldn't, he couldn't fill in. They could have given Finn Stevens his home debut, but they decided not to. And they put Sam and Godos there. Now, Sam and Godos had filled in as a substitute left wing back a couple of times, I think particularly against Watford at home, where he had a massive influence on us turning a one-goal deficit into a crucial, crucial victory. And Sam and Godos was inspired for 75 minutes until he got injured. He gave everything. He was everywhere. He went into tackles. He had a, a magnificent game, and the, they were so proud of him. So it's these unsung heroes who can play in any position. And you look at Sergi, you look at Brian and Bumo, and when Brian and Bumo missed the chance in the last second against Spurs after Tony's header came off the post, he was playing at right wing back at that point uh, because he'd moved back because of all the substitutions. Um, as far as Mbumo is concerned, now his average goal, anticipated average goal, uh, sorry, his, his, his expected goals for last season were just under 10. Now, he scored four, of which one was a penalty, so really three. So he, I'm afraid, underperformed, I believe, the most of any player in the Premier League in terms of his actual rather, expect, rather than expected goals. Now, you talk to both Phil and Thomas about him, and they're both certainly, for public dissemination, incredibly calm, cool, and phlegmatic about it. And they both say, well, he scored 16 goals two years ago, um, 24 goals in his first two seasons. Um, he will revert to the mean. Now, he hit the post seven times. So if four of those had got in, he'd have scored eight goals last season. Um, but a constant theme in the book, because I have read this book about 10 times now because I had to triple check it. Um, I kept seeing Abuemo missed this chance and Abuemo missed another chance. And it did happen an awful lot. You know, remember the Brighton game early on when we lost 1-0, which was a travesty. And Phil said the difference between the two teams in that game is that Mbwemo cuts inside, curls a left footer, and it goes just past the post. In the last second, Trossard cuts inside, curls a shot in, and it goes just inside the post. That's the difference between luck or even premiership class. Now, the view is... Mbwemo is very, very close to being a wonderful player. Now, you look at him and he, he contributes so much. Clubs, uh, teams back off him. They're terrified to be left standing by his pace. They give him space to room and room. And he provides opportunities and chances. But the finishing last season was appalling. Now, we hope that it will revert to the mean next season. He'll get... 10, 12 goals. Who knows? There will have to come a time, if he doesn't, when 
something else will have to be done. I mean, what, what do you feel about it, Dave? Um, <clears throat> yeah, my, my feelings on Mbemo is he, he's brilliant at everything but that moment in front of goal. And, and I don't ever think he will be a high goal scorer. I think we've got enough evidence now to see that he's a really awkward guy in front of goal. He, his body shape is off. The time it takes him to settle, um, his composure. I think his body shape as well and what he brings to the team. He's just a better player outside of the box. If you think about trying to go past people, movement of body quickly, deception, um, that power. Move. There's other things that are his qualities. And I think you're, I actually think you'd be barking up the wrong tree to just try and turn him into a, a reliable goal scorer. I think there's far better things he's better at. And um, yeah, no, I, I only asked it because... Um, because Phil is so sure and they are so sure that he will revert to a goal scorer. But they're, what they're doing is they're talking about his first ever season, those 16 goals in the championship. Um, you play a lot of games in the championship. How much luck was involved in that in that season? How much of an unknown was he? Uh, I, I'm, I'd be very surprised if you're looking at a player that gets into double figures there, simply because of just what he is as a, as a player and a person. It's not going to be for not trying, but I just don't think it will ever come for him in that sense. And He's still only 22. That's you know, he's very, very young. And I think I mean, he, he does look older, I have to say. Um, but, you know, we, we have an incredible prospect. There. And I think we have to be patient with him. We have to love him. We have to encourage him. I think Ivan Tony a few times got a bit fed up with him. Um, but at the same time, they, they linked up so well. And the way that... Um, and Buema ran the channels, the way that Tony's flick-ons would find him, the way that between him, Tony, and David Rea, we would turn defence into attack in an, in an instant. It made Brentford so good to watch, so exciting, and so difficult to play against. So it'd be very hard. I mean, let's assume we stick to 4-3-3 against all but the top, top eight. Now, that's how I would do it next season, but who knows? And that leaves... A big question marks that maybe we'll cover about who plays at centre half. But if we have three up front with uh, Tony Mbomo and Vissa, or maybe we have someone else that comes in as a wide player, um, at least we'll have more options. I must stress, though, I don't think talking about him as being bad in front of goal or or, or awkward or, or not reliable in front of goal has to be viewed as a bad thing because of how good his other attributes are. I think. You, you touched on it then, being a foil for the other players. Um, how much does he scare other teams? Does he drag other players away? Is it, does it take two players to get him off the ball? All of these things we see a lot with him. So um, if we look around the league, it's not just goal scorers that are important. There's other players as well. And there's only a, maybe a clutch of players who are really big goal scorers. Um, yeah, I, I think he's a fine player and I think he's going to have a long career. But the, 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 the difficult thing to do with age is actually when you see someone's 22 and think that they're just still a young player, but he's, he's had a number of seasons now, like full seasons. He's probably played a lot more football than a lot of other players his age. So he is a lot further down his developmental cycle than, than some of those players. So I don't want to rule him out. No, no, I was just giving you my opinion on him. But um, yeah, he's an exciting player and one I enjoy watching, just not um, just not shooting. That's uh, <laughs> how so I stand with him. Um a day he did have a really good game as well was the away win over Chelsea. Um, he was instrumental in Ericsson's goal, spinning, um, I can't remember which player it was on the halfway line, or sorry, on the edge of our box and running up the pitch and laying one off for Ericsson. Um, the away win at Chelsea was pro- arguably, uh, you may 
you may dispute this, but uh, one of greatest uh, Brentford's greatest performances and results, I think, of all time. Um, Thomas seems like a really fair guy and an even-killed man, and um, the Chelsea manager appeared to test that level-headedness after the game. Yes, I, 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 um, I mean, <laughs> it was the chapter is called the best win ever with a question mark. I think it was Brentford's best win in their history. Um, not that I was around in the mid late thirties when they were. You know, we were a very, very good first division team. But um, I was speaking to a very close friend of mine I was at school with who's been a Chelsea fan for more years than he would like to remember. And he said that we absolutely stuffed them. In fact, he's in the book, I called Jonathan Kidd. And I put his views in in the book because Thomas Tuchel was ridiculous. He was so grudging and patronising. I know he was shell-shocked, but he was bizarre and ungracious in the extreme. And he didn't give an ounce of credit to the bees. He described them as well-organised and very physical. And they made a lot of the 10 minutes we gave them. So And we were lucky enough and clinical enough to have suddenly three goals. And then he went totally do-lally and talked about various strange events included he said the, the the weather was a bit warm and they trained the day before and it was cold and they wore gloves but it was a bit warm today so the club they they found it a bit hard to um to react now that's all very well and um i i mentioned all this to um to thomas frank and he was really uh, just disappointed i think is the right way of putting it in tuchel because he thought he was a bit better than that and he said that also um, after the um, the first game, again, Tuchel didn't give a word of praise to Brentford, who pulverised Chelsea for 20 minutes. That, that, those, that last 20 minutes against Chelsea, I thought was the best I've ever seen us play. We absolutely mullered them and somehow didn't score. And, um, he, and Thomas said that he'd have loved Tuchel to have shown more class and... His quote was, he said, he said um, in his place, he would have said, Thomas, well done. We were fucking lucky today. Um, I'd have done that if the roles were reversed. And similarly, in the, after the 4-1 game, um, he was just completely bemused by Tuchel's reaction. So, but, you know, obviously Tuchel's in a different stratosphere and it's not done for a team like his to struggle against um, little old Brentford, is it? It's certainly not. He was going through his own difficulties, um, yeah, off the field and, and team-wise as well. They were going through some struggles and it it, it, it kind of, sort of started a decline for them as well as they petered out towards the end of the season. But yeah, not much respect shown from, from that direction of West London. Um, Greville, we can't not talk about Christian Eriksen. Um, there's a definite attempt to downplay his influence on the team, isn't there? Um, how important do you think his introduction involvement was to you? Well, he came in at a time when we needed a boost of Philip. You know, we started off like a house on fire. Um, we took the league by storm. And then it all turned bad around October when the injuries kicked in. And as I said, we had a small squad and we couldn't afford to lose players of the calibre that we lost. So... I think when you then got towards Christmas, was it the Watford game when we could barely put out a squad? Um, and we were missing in one stage, I think, a whole team of injured first-team first squad players. 
and we had to box and cox, we had to put square pegs in round holes. And the fixture list around uh, January, February was very difficult. And we had, I think, in the course of about six games, we had Man United, we had Liverpool, we had Arsenal, uh, we had Wolves. Um, you know, we had really, really tough games. And we had to do the best we could with, no, with not a full squad. And we struggled accordingly. So to sign Christian Eriksen was a massive boost. And the way that we did it, we know that we worked very hard and we showed him that this was the most congenial place for him to come, where he'd be amongst friends, fellow countrymen, um, in an atmosphere that would help him support him and his family. He'd be in London. He'd be able to play every week at a high standard and test himself and help prepare for the World Cup. So it all made terribly good sense for him to join us, which in my view, I thought it would never happen because football and common sense are not something that often um, go hand in hand. But he came and he settled in immediately on the pitch. You could see his influence. He, he calmed us down. He slowed us down. Um, we were less frenetic. We were less hurried on the ball. The West Ham game I've already mentioned, when suddenly we're playing little triangles in midfield. Um, that was mainly down to him. He was the catalyst. Off the pitch, he was a fantastic influence in the dressing room. In training, the players would, would, would gasp in wonder at his skill, particularly with set pieces and dead balls. Um, also, and I'm indebted to the wonderful Jay Harris for this uh, from The Athletic, apparently at lunch, he would have he would sit down next to a different player every to every day, so some of the fairy dust would 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 sprinkle on them. So he was a fantastic influence, and you cannot um, overestimate his importance. But there were other reasons we got other players back. So when you suddenly get Raya back, you suddenly get Aya back. You manage to keep Pontus Janssen fit all season. You know Christian Norgard is fit. Um, we were riddled with COVID um, and injuries. And at Manchester City at the Etihad, a game where but for two really annoying and frustrating defensive aberrations, we could even have got a point. Um, we went into it with, you know, the dynamic duo of Sergi Canos and Samon Godos as our strike partnership because we lost three strikers to injury in COVID less than a week at the, after the end of the transfer window after the transfer window had slammed shut when we sent quite correctly Marcus Force out on loan but didn't bring in yet another striker to understudy the front three. Um, that's Brentford. They take calculated risks and gambles and they were proved right. But in some cases it was a close run thing. So you know that's what happened. So Christian Eriksen incredible but he was the catalyst it wasn't just him who actually kept us up. As we round this up now, I want to finish up with five quick fire questions. Yep. These are going to be quick. They're going to be zippy. I don't want you to think too much about them. I want you to, to pass on what comes straight into your head. Totally unaware and unprepared. So, <laughs> Right, let's go. Here we go. Five questions. Okay, number one. Which player is going to surprise us most next season? Josh De Silva. If you were Phil Giles, which one player would you sign tomorrow to move us up into the Champions League spaces? Uh, Christian Eriksen. 
Is Christian Eriksen going to be a Brentford player next season? Pass. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. I think we're very close to knowing. And I think it makes so much sense for him to join us. Who knows? Um, if, if he signs for Man United, I can just about understand it. If he signed for Spurs, I could understand it. If he signs for you know a Newcastle or someone or a Leicester, then it's just bonkers. Bonkers indeed, indeed. Okay, which position will Brentford finish in the league next season? Ninth. And the biggest question of all, are you planning a sequel to Just a Bus Stop in Hounslow? <laughs> possibly, possibly. Um, I think that this season had everything. It had everything. It had the history. It had the, the magic. It had the excitement. Um, the first night against Arsenal, as we said, you know, when you, you get um, Gary Neville and Jamie character throwing off the cloak of objectivity and roaring uh, their approval and singing along to Hey Jude, you know, that, the season started off on a, on a massive high and it got even higher. So part of me thinks that perhaps that, you know, can next season be just as good? I'm not sure. I want to I want to see how this book is received. Hopefully it sells well. Hopefully I've already had a lot of good comments from people within the club. So, you know, uh, Michael Caulfield, who I massively respect, who's the psychologist, um, Cliff Crown, Nitty Raj, Phil Giles have all said it's a good book um, and they've enjoyed it and they've they think it's a fair book. So hopefully I'll get, um, a, you know, more objective comments and criticism. I'll take a view. If it sells well, if people like it, then possibly. Do you think I should? I think you'd be rude not to. Yeah, I think you've got to continue on. Continue on. Um, but yeah, Greville, that's been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. Um I'm um, about 80% through the book. I've got a little bit to go. I've, I've enjoyed every bit so far. Um, yeah, it's it's just an incredible read. Um, yeah, just a just a bus stop in Hounslow it takes you on like a roller coaster journey throughout the season. Um, but it's wildly measured as well, and um, it's informative, and it's it, it will teach you things. It will make you laugh. Um, you'll share disappointment, and and I think as well, it's it's just not aimed at Brentford fans as well. I think a lot of other fans of other clubs will really enjoy this, and um, you've done a great job. Truly have. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be on today. No trouble at all, um, Gravel. Let's do the PR bits. Uh, can you let us know how to get hold of a copy? Where do we get a copy and where can we find you online? Right. Um, I'm on at Grev Waterman um, on Twitter. Um, if you want to get hold of the book, you could get a hold of a copy today if you go to hawksmoorpublishing.com, which is H-A-W-K-S-M-O-O-R publishing.com. You could order a book direct from them. Amazon, uh, the book is published tomorrow, July the 1st. Amazon have their copies and they should be sending them out tomorrow, but for some ridiculous reason saying they're not going to be delivered till the 6th of July. But you can certainly order it on Amazon. Um, the club shop will have lots of copies. They should have them very shortly, if not already. So hopefully there are ways you can get hold of the copy, get hold of a copy. Um, being the media whore that I am, I'd be more than happy to sign them anything that anyone wants me to do. Hopefully we'll have some sort of launch at the club early in the new, in the new season too. Um, and we'll see. We'll, we'll see about a follow-up. Great stuff. Um, yep, lots of ways to get hold of the book. And uh, we may have um, 
we may have a couple of books up for grabs on Beast Tactical, so stay tuned. Um, I'm happy to do that if you want to organise it. I'll be happy to give a couple of books away. That leaves me to say thanks again to Greville for joining us. Um, thanks for taking the time to chat. Um, remember to support the Patreon and to help keep the podcast wheels turning. Uh, you get to listen to ad free as well um, for a small price of like a coffee a month you can sign up to the Patreon but that leaves me to say thanks to Greville again thanks for listening please like review and share and we'll catch you next time see ya catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 